Between June 18th to the 22nd of 2003, the collective online world held their breath as the fate of the Ocean Gate submersible Titan waited to be known, creating countless memes, a lasting sense of schadenfreude, and lots of dark humor, the actual consequences of the submersible disaster will continue to be felt for years to come. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. Now, perhaps if you're anything like me, your knee-jerk reaction to hearing the news about the Titan was, oh my god, I didn't even know you could go to the Titanic. The image from the iconic film is of them using an ROV, or remote-operated vehicle, to find the ship. But as it turns out, commercial submersibles have been heading down to the wreckage site since the early 2000s. Yet another common reaction, though, was why? Why would you want to do something like that? Well, Titanic has held a thrall over the world since it departed on its ill-fated maiden voyage back in 1912. If you were to ask people from around the world what lives under the water, invariably one of the answers will be Titanic. Who doesn't know something about the unsinkable ship? And it is perhaps ingrained somewhere in our subconscious to seek out the things that went wrong, to understand the circumstances better. Think about the rise of the true crime genre in popularity over the last few decades. And though I hate to talk about it in this way, given that I am sort of running a true crime podcast. Uh, It's existed for generations. One only has to look at the Ted Bundy trial or the enduring legacy of unsolved mysteries to see that this is not a new thing. But I digress. Anyway, the rise of why true crime has found such a home, particularly among the female presenting population, is the desire to know what went wrong, to understand the cases and to see how we, the consumer, would have done things differently. It's a way of calming our anxious lizard brains. Let's head back to the Titanic. So trying to discover the location of the Titanic consumed much of the 20th century. It first began with a group who wanted to salvage their valuables lost during the sinking, and it goes all the way to groups in the 1970s who wanted to bring up the wreck to do such things as make paperweights from the wreckage. The idea was still popular. But the idea of actually bringing the Titanic back up was nearly impossible for multiple reasons. The first, the final distress message sent by the Titanic gave an incorrect reading of where they were, meaning that nobody truly knew where the Titanic had actually sunk. The second problem, even without knowing exactly where the ship went down, the seabed in the general area of the Atlantic where it was presumed to lie was thousands of meters deep. Technology at the time meant that no deep-sea divers could head down and hope to withstand the pressure at that depth. Furthermore, submarine technology was still in its infancy. Even if there were submarines available, they'd all been recalled to start helping in the war effort. And the third problem... How the heck do you bring up the largest passenger ship in the world? Well, strap in, because some of the ideas that have come to light over the years will have you scratching your head. So let's go in order. Using a bathyscaphe, which is a self-propelled submersible using gasoline and iron to make it work. I looked it up. I still don't understand the physics, but it is a real thing. 
In the 60s, one of these bathyscapes even made it to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. So, using this and a series of nylon balloons, the plan was to attach the balloons to the wreck and send it floating to the surface. Why didn't this work? Well, after thousands of dollars was thrown at the project, it was discovered that the pivotal question, how do you inflate the balloons at 3,800 meters below sea level, couldn't be answered. Now, according to some calculations, it was potentially possible to do, but it would have taken more than a decade, making it not financially feasible. In the 70s, the new plan presented was to fill the entire ship with Vaseline. Yep, you heard that right, Vaseline. By pumping 180,000 tons of the stuff into the ship, it was believed that that would raise it to the surface. Too hard to find a way to get that much Vaseline down there, you might be asking? Well, never fear, because someone then thought, no, no, screw the Vaseline. Let's do ping pong balls. That's a better way to float the boat. Spoiler alert, the ping pong balls would have been crushed by the pressure long before they approached the wreck. So another person then floated the idea that they could use benthospheres, which could withstand the pressure. Except that in order to make the benthos idea feasible, it would cost approximately $238 million in the 70s. Again, not financially feasible. In yet another plan, this time presented by an unemployed haulage contractor, the thought was that the best way to bring the Titanic up would be to encase it in an iceberg. The iceberg would then help with buoyancy and bring the ship back to the surface. Because why not return the Titanic the same way it went down? The problem with this, you see, is you needed a way to pump millions of tons of nitrogen to the wreck. Again, just to clarify, thousands of meters below the surface. Needless to say, didn't go very far. Clive Cussler, the intrepid and best-selling author of many a ship-related book, wrote the thriller Raise the Titanic in 1976. His hero heads down to the wreck, pumps it full of compressed air, and the ship skyrockets to the surface. The scene in the subsequent film was visually stunning, leading some to consider the possibilities of doing so in reality. A group actually built a 55-foot model of the Titanic and attempted to do such a feat. Even in testing, this proved impossible. Dr. Robert Ballard gets involved in 1977. He joins onto a project that is attempting to pick up the Titanic with a giant mechanical claw that was remotely operated from a drill ship on the surface. A drill ship, in case you are wondering, is a ship used for scientific purposes in ways like finding how to drill the ocean floor. Now, this project failed because as they put the mechanical claw in the water, the drill pipe broke. So millions of dollars of equipment was sent falling to the seabed below, and the project was scrapped. Now, the last salvage mission we need to know about was launched by a Texan oil man named Jack Grimm. Grimm had already sponsored expeditions to find Noah's Ark, among other things, but he was quite keen on finding the Titanic. He hit up his poker buddies for some seed money, and as a good businessman, sold the media rights to the William Morris Company. 
and then donated quite a sum to Columbia University so that he might have use of their wide-sweep sonar. And in doing so, he managed to get quite a team of experts on his side, including Dr. B.F. Ryan of Columbia University and Dr. Fred Spice of the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. If that's not enough, he even got Orson Welles on board to narrate the project when they finally came around to doing a documentary. At one point, he did almost lose the scientists, though. You see, Grimm really wanted to use a monkey. A monkey that was trained to point at a spot on a map where the Titanic supposedly was. Now, understandably, upon learning about this, the scientists were livid and refused to continue. It was either the monkey or their expertise. Grimm apparently was quite upset by this, but decided to go with the scientists. For three summers and countless dives, Grimm led expeditions to find the Titanic. At one point, he believed he found the propeller, although the scientists on board disputed this claim. In what I think is a little bit of a cruel twist of fate, in 1983, on his last voyage, his sonars came within three kilometers of the wreck which in all of the vastness of the deep Atlantic is absolutely incredible. But maybe Grimm should have used the monkey, after all. Dr. Robert Ballard comes back to lead the team that does discover the wreck in 1985. He had been the first to decide to use ROVs rather than sonar to attempt to discover the wreck. Sonar had trouble differentiating between natural changes in the seabed and human-made things lying upon it. After securing pictures, Dr. Ballard shows the world pictures of the Titanic for the first time in 73 years. His discovery also confirms eyewitness accounts from survivors who told reporters that the ship broke in two parts. Most of those survivors who saw that were women, so this was long believed to be misremembered. Plans to bring the entire ship up to the surface are scrapped. This doesn't mean specific objects can't be brought back up from the wreck, and indeed there have been salvage operations successfully completed on the wreck over the subsequent decades. It is perhaps part of the spirit of, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, that inspires OceanGate's CEO, Stockton Rush, to create his own submersible. Dives to the Titanic have been commercially available since the early 2000s, back when Russian submersibles were leading guests to the site. So it was clear to Rush that people would pay to see Titanic. Let's talk about Stockton Rush. He's been vilified by the media in the weeks since the implosion for showing a frankly cavalier attitude towards certification and the sanctity of human life. He was desperate to be seen as an innovator and craved recognition as a man who broke the rules. In some ways, he comes by it honestly. He's a descendant of two signers of the Declaration of Independence, Richard Stockton and Benjamin Rush, also men who disrupted the system. In fact, Rush's full name is Richard Stockton Rush III. If that name seems fancy, it is. He's born into a considerably wealthy family with many philanthropic connections. It seems as though Mr. Rush was fascinated from an early age by space and space exploration. He wanted to be the first person on Mars, 
and even trained as a pilot to help him get there. He built his own experimental two-seater plane. But by 2004, Stockton ventured to the Mojave Desert and witnessed Spaceship One, the first commercially built spacecraft venture into outer space. After witnessing Richard Branson's triumph with Spaceship One, Rush decided to move away from space ventures. He wanted to emulate Captain Kirk, not be a tourist. So he turns back to an old love, scuba diving. He was already an accomplished diver, and after moving to Seattle, began to get his cold water certification. Except that the longer he spends under the frigid waters of Puget Sound, the more something begins to clarify to him. Yes, the things he sees under the water are incredible, but the difficulty in putting on a wetsuit and having to spend hours floating under the water, decompressing? Well, that's annoying. Wouldn't it be better to sit inside, watching the ocean through a window? That way he can be comfortable and warm. Thus, the idea for Ocean Gate is born. Stockton builds his first submersible in 2006 after trying to purchase one himself. As he learns more about submersibles, he becomes frustrated with things like the Passenger Safety Act. He sees the safety protocols listed throughout as death to innovation. He wants to push the boundaries. And it seemed like he truly believed that submersibles were safe. After all, there hadn't been an incident in years when he begins to build his submersibles. OceanGate is formed in 2009 with Stockton and Guillermo Zünlein. At its creation, the goal of OceanGate was to have small submersibles that people could rent out for ocean exploration and research. The hope was to be able to open up the oceans for people. And in the beginning, it did just that. Their first submersible, called Antipodes, was used by the University of Washington to help test sonar equipment and was then used in Miami in 2012 to help document the spread of the invasive lionfish species. Well, the Antipodes was also used to ferry passengers on more touristic endeavors, including trips to Catalina Island. It was during these voyages that Rush first began hiring experts to help explain what people were seeing through the windows during their dives. By the end of 2013, Rush was determined to build his own fleet of submersibles using engineering skills honed at Princeton University. Princeton University was a school his ancestor helped to found. So upon recognizing the change in Rush, Zunlein departs as CEO, although he does keep a small share in the company. It would seem he too was concerned about the direction in which Rush was heading. The first custom-built submersible, and I'm putting custom-built in quotation marks because technically most of the hull was pre-built and bought from a company in the Azores, debuted in 2015, now named Cyclops One. It had one viewing hull, so I'll leave you to figure out why they called it that. The reconfigured design had input both from the University of Washington and Boeing, Rush had initially asked to have the hull be made of carbon fiber, but the university said no. They demanded steel. Hence, the pre-built hull. Because this was the first combination submersible OceanGate created, it began inputting components it would continue to use throughout. 
namely the game controller used to operate the submersible. In 2015, McCallum, a noted expert in submersibles and deep diving, who was being courted by Rush for his help, felt appalled upon seeing the submersible. He couldn't believe it was being controlled with a video game console, or let alone that communication between the sub and the surface was to be done via Bluetooth. As he says, quote, Every sub in the world has hardwired controls for a reason. If the signal drops out, you're not screwed. End quote. McCallum eventually left after discovering that Rush would not countenance having his submersible classified. What does it mean to classify a submersible? Well, basically it means to have the submersible proven to be safe at depths. There are different depth charges, ranging from ones heading into relatively shallow waters, all the way to the ones that can safely head down to the Marianas Trench. It's a means of noting that things have been done in a way consistent with passenger safety. Rush had no inclination of doing such a thing. He wanted to be a maverick in the field, even as he toted how safe his submersible was. Starting in late 2016, work on the Cyclops II began in earnest. Rush commissioned the Spencer Composite Group to fashion a cylindrical carbon fiber hull. Using carbon fiber, he got at a steep discount from Boeing. Why was it at such a deep discount? It was too old to safely be used in airplanes. It had passed its best before date. If that's not bad enough, how long did Rush give Spencer Composite to make the hull? Six weeks. Let's talk for a moment about carbon fiber. It really is an incredible material, and it's part of what allows planes to fly in the air. The problem is when you take carbon fiber deep into the ocean. See... Carbon fiber is excellent at withstanding tension. It's not so great at withstanding compression, particularly at depths such as the Titanic. Most submersibles are made of titanium and formed as a sphere. The spherical shape allows for the distribution of pressure to be even across the surface. And even more importantly, titanium gets stronger with repeated pressure tests. It loves compression. Carbon fiber gets weaker with pressure tests. But titanium is expensive. Not to mention the spherical design only allows for two, maybe three people to fit inside of it. And it certainly does not have a window. But they can be glassed. And it's not to say that there was no titanium aboard the Cyclops too. There were titanium components, along with other components such as construction pipes, and all of these parts were sometimes held together with zip ties. Those are the designed components. The ship is lit up with camping lights and plenty of other things that can be found at big box stores. It's still being controlled by the good old Logitech and has a padded floor so people can sit relatively comfortably. Although during one particular mission, it took 27 hours for the people inside to make it safely out of the submersible. So, safe to say I don't think the padded flooring would feel particularly comfortable after maybe hour four. The whole electrical system, by the way, on the submersible? It started as a design project for electrical engineering students at the University of Washington. OceanGate actually went on to hire some of those students to continue their work after graduation. Now, the students, of course, were thrilled that their work would help people to see the wreck of the Titanic. 
the University of Washington has distanced themselves from this fact. And let's not forget about the main draw of Cyclops, too. The window. Why would you spend $250,000 to die to the Titanic if you're only going to see it through a computer screen? You have to see it to believe it. So Stockton insists on having an acrylic window placed on the submersible. It is, as he proudly tells reporters and visitors, over seven inches thick and totally safe. Which it was, up to a depth of about 1,200 meters. That's a third of the way to the Titanic. Now, to be clear, Rush could have had a viewpoint put in that would be safe up to the depth of the Titanic, which was the clear reason for this project. Why didn't he? Well, that was going to cost him millions more dollars. Instead, Rush designs and patents his own acoustic monitoring system. In this way, he again assures everybody he'll know if something goes wrong. The alarm will go off, alerting them to get back to the surface. Except that in reality, the alarm system would only alert milliseconds before an emergency, which was not enough time to return to the surface. And the alert system didn't account for the degrading of the carbon fiber. This was noted back in a report in 2018 by then-Director of Marine Operations. In his capacity, David Lockridge was asked to give the final inspection report on the Cyclops II, which had now been renamed Titan. He refused to sign off on the submersible, noticing that among other issues, it appeared that one part of the carbon fiber hull was looking pretty porous. And at one point, he managed to pass his phone's flashlight through a section of it. For noticing this, he was summarily fired. He sent his inspection report to the Occupational Safety Health Association. It appears that they then sent that on to the Coast Guard but the report was never followed up. But meanwhile, back at Ocean Gate, having now lost their chief submersible pilot when they fired Lockridge, Rush decides to go to the director of finance and asks if she would like to pilot the submersible. She had no training in submersible piloting. She was an accountant. Recognizing how dangerous this might be, she quickly declined the offer and began to send out resumes. The underwater transportation community is quite small, so people began to hear about the submersible made out of carbon fiber. And before long, numerous people were reaching out to Rush, begging him not to put the submersible in the water. This included a letter with the backing of most of the Manned Underwater Vehicles Committee of the Marine Technology Society. Rush ignored it. Later, the chairman of the committee, Will Conan, brought the letter up to Rush in hopes of having a calm discussion with him. Rush did not take kindly to criticism and instead pushed forward with Titan. By 2019, Titan was commencing test dives in the Bahamas, the country under which it is registered. Why is an American submersible being registered in the uh, Bahamas and not the United States? Well, remember how Stockton had no plans on classifying his sub? Given the experimental nature of it, uh, it was illegal for him to transport passengers. That's why so many of the articles about the implosion will mention the victims as quote-unquote mission specialists. He legally was not allowed to call them passengers. So the entirety of Ocean Gate surrounding the Titan submersible was designed to fall outside of U.S. jurisdiction. 
that's also where we come in. Because I bet some of you were wondering by this point what this has to do with Canada. Well, Canada has had a long connection with the Titanic. Most of the victims' bodies were brought to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where their graves are today. And, you know, James Cameron, who directed Titanic? Yep, he's Canadian. I visited a memorialization of his birthplace once on the way to Niagara Falls with my grandparents. But most importantly, Newfoundland is the closest territory to the wreck site. So many expeditions to the Titanic leave from there. And for Ocean Gate's Titanic expeditions, they used a Canadian vessel as their point ship, the MV Polar Prince, or to use the Mi'kmaq name, the Okwatnukwe Elekwe Wijijit. And I hope I'm saying that right. I've tried hard to find the pronunciation. So let's go back to Polar Prince for a second, because I have to pause to talk about this boat, because this was a rabbit hole I was not expecting to go down when looking into Ocean Gate. So the MV Polar Prince began its life as the Canadian Coast Guard ship named Sir Humphrey Gilbert. Sir Humphrey Gilbert was apparently an early explorer of the Northwest Passage. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. You see, this man was obsessed with finding the mystical and mythical nation of Cathay. He was determined to find the route that would get them there from England. But before he was able to set his sights on exploration... Gilbert ended up having to head to Ireland to try and tamp down the locals so the English could rule over them. He was ruthless with the Irish and encouraged his soldiers to kill innocent women and children as well. For this, he was knighted, because of course he was. Now armed with his knighthood, he tried to convince Queen Elizabeth to grant funding to find this fabled Northwest Passage. She granted him the leave to try, and he first sets off in 1578 for the New World. Does he make it? No. He's home within six months, the storms on the North Atlantic having bested him. And by 1579, the Irish are fighting again, and so he's sent with a fleet of ships to help quell this new rebellion. Does he make it to Ireland? Not right away. He actually gets lost and ends up off the coast of Spain before finally making it to Cork. Upon disembarking in Cork, he angrily hit one Irishman over the head with his sword and then murdered another. So he's a super guy. But he's still determined to find the Northwest Passage. So Gilbert now hits up the remaining English Catholics for money to help get him there. He convinces them that if they aid him in funding this mission, he will claim nine million acres of land for them where they can live without religious retribution. And they give him the money. He takes that... Well, some of it, you see, because a lot of it had been taken away due to strict anti-Catholic laws in England at the time. He manages to hire a group of pirates and other criminals to join him on his fleet of five ships. Somehow, miraculously, they make it to Newfoundland. Now, initially, they found their entrance into the port of St. John's blocked. Turns out, someone Gilbert knew committed piracy against a Portuguese ship a year before, and Gilbert had to pay for it before they'd let him in. He forks over the money and lands officially in the New World, which already happens to be full of the indigenous people there, and a whole host of fishermen who already knew it existed. But following English common law, Gilbert cuts off part of the land and claims it in the name of England on August 5th of 1583. One of his first acts is to try and levy attacks on all the fishermen who were already there, and also to accept a dog given to him by the Beothuk people. 
Uh, spoiler alert, but Beothuk ended up being wiped out because of European colonization. So why don't we know Gilbert as having started the first settlement in North America? It's because he didn't have enough supplies. He ended up only staying a few weeks before heading back to England. And when he leaves, ignoring the directions of more accomplished mariners and his crew, Gilbert insisted he knew the way back to Cornwall. He ended up taking them south, and one of his ships ran aground on Sable Island, which is known as the Graveyard of the Atlantic for just how many ships crash into it. Now, unfortunately for him and the rest of the crew, the ship that sank was the one with most of their supplies. In a bit of a pickle, they continue across the Atlantic. Gilbert never does make it back to England. He stubbornly insists on staying on the smaller of the two ships that are left. Pretty much everybody had tried to convince him that he needed to move to the other one, but he wouldn't listen to their reasoning. So the other ship watches the smaller one sink in heavy seas off the Azores Islands. Ah yes, the perfect man we should name a ship after. I mean, it is fitting in a way that a man so determined to find the Northwest Passage would end up as the name of an icebreaker ship. It stays with the Coast Guard from 1959 all the way to 2001, at which point it was sold to private hands and then renamed the Polar Prince. It enjoyed a few more years as a commercial icebreaker around the Arctic, but its heyday comes in 2017, Canada's 150th anniversary. The ship was temporarily renamed Canada C-3 and had a lovely anniversary voyage around all three of Canada's oceans. In 2021, it was bought by Miawupekek Horizon Maritime Services Limited. When not involved in commercial endeavors, it is a ship used as part of Students on Ice, a Canadian charity dedicated to fostering learning from international and Canadian students about the Arctic region. It's also used to teach Mi'kmaq cadets who want to work on shipping vessels. And yes, some of the time it was used by OceanGate. Let's make something clear. OceanGate has been running tours down to the Titanic since 2021. Their record of success at making it down to the Titanic and having their mission specialists see it? 14%. That's less than a fifth of a chance that the $250,000 of mission specialist tickets purchased to see the Titanic meant that they would actually see it. Even if they did manage to get to the Titanic, it didn't mean that it was going to be smooth sailing from there. During one tour in 2021, the pilot realized only once they'd reached the ocean floor that one of the thrusters that had been taken out for maintenance had been misinstalled. So instead of being easily controlled by the video game console, he can only spin the Titan around in circles. So how did they solve this? Well, Rush, who for once wasn't on the Titan, uses Google Images to try and hack the controller, and the poor pilot has to follow unclear instructions via Bluetooth while also navigating the minefield of wreckage that surrounds the Titanic. If this sounds crazy, don't worry, it is. But it was all caught by a film crew, and they did manage to see the Titanic that day. Film crew, you might be thinking. The interview with CBS correspondent David Pogue didn't manage to get that far, but uh, he wasn't the only media outlet interested in the Titan. Back in 2021, host of Expedition Unknown, Josh Gates, and his camera person Brian Weed are interested in Titan as part of an episode they're considering involving the wreck of the Titanic. They were invited to do a couple of test dives with Rush in Puget Sound to get a feel for it. 
While on a test dive, the submersible's thrusters malfunctioned, and it took two hours for them to get rescued. Trapped in the Titan, they asked Rush more questions about the safety of the submersible. It became clear that the OceanGate CEO had a lackadaisical attitude towards safety under the water. At one point, Weed asked Rush what would happen if the hours of oxygen ran out and they still hadn't been found. Rush's reply was, quote, Well, you're dead anyway. Not exactly what you want to hear when you're trapped under the water. Another interested party in doing a documentary about the Titanic wreck were actually prohibited from even going into the submersible after safety checks by their agents. Some YouTubers have managed to go on trips, but it seems most companies have been too wary about the submersible to let anyone on it. Looking at the waiver alone would be enough to stop most people from going inside. The fact that death is brought up multiple times on the first page is disconcerting, to say the least. They did do lots of safety checks. If three things were found to be wrong with the Titan before a dive, then it was a no-go. And there were lots of things that could have helped to raise the submersible to the surface if it needed to. The Titan's final dive began at 8 a.m. on June 18th. It was Father's Day. On board were five men who I have to give credit to. All of them are far braver than I will ever be. Stockton Rush was piloting this sub. Pierre-Henri Narjolet was on board as Mr. Titanic. He was the world's foremost expert on the wreck, having helped to bring over 6,000 artifacts to the surface. Hamish Harding was a true explorer, having held multiple Guinness World Records. He visited the South Pole and had even been in a submersible inside of the Marianas Trench. Shahazda Dawood was a Pakistani entrepreneur and philanthropist who was interested in natural habitats and renewable energy. He'd nursed a deep love for the Titanic all his life. His wife described him as being, quote, like a child as they prepared for the final dive. He was accompanied by his dutiful son, Suleiman, a first-year student at the University of Strathclyde. Suleiman mentioned to family members that he was terrified to go on the submersible, but that he wanted to go for his father because it was Father's Day. To help give him some comfort, he brought along his Rubik's Cube. His goal was to complete the cube at the depth of the Titanic, earning him a Guinness World Record. It's hard to imagine the grief being felt by the loved ones of these five people. After communication was lost with the sub at approximately 9.45 a.m., the people left behind on Polar Prince had over 95 hours of agonized waiting. They knew that people from many nations came to help, but were still stuck, hoping and praying to hear something. But then the final realization came that their loved ones would not be returning from the sea. Many people were glued to their screens as well, constantly refreshing social media to see if there was any news. It came out later that it appears the U.S. Coast Guard and James Cameron, who had contacts within the Coast Guard, managed to capture what they believed to be the sound of the implosion. They did not tell media outlets, who continued to discuss the possibilities of slowly suffocating inside the Titan for 96 hours. I'm glad that none of them did suffer that fate. If the calculations of scientists are correct, from the time the alarm went off to the actual implosion of the Titan, 
it would have been about 40 milliseconds. So it's quite possible that none of them would have felt a thing. We can only hope. Now, despite all of the memes and dark humor, there remains five people who lost their lives that day. And so many people question why you would even get in the submersible. I mean, I won't lie. When I first heard about this, I was struck with fear for the passengers. But I was also struck with wonder at the fact that people could visit the Titanic. Shipwrecks have long held a special place in my heart. So the idea that I could one day see the Titanic was absolutely awe-inspiring to me. So, even though this disaster is due in no small part to the hubris of the OceanGate CEO and the power of the ocean, I want to end this episode with a quote from Josh Gates, who happened to be giving an interview when the news broke about the implosion. Remarking on having spent time in the Titan with Stockton Rush and on a lifetime of visiting shipwrecks and exploring little-known areas, he had this to say about the passengers aboard that fated submersible. Quote, it was an admirable goal to go down there. This has been Canadian Disasters, True North, Strong, and Destructive.